Well, <clears throat> welcome to this retreat. My name is Sylvia, and this is Sharon, and this is Carol, and this is Miocean. And uh, it's a great honor and pleasure for all of us to be here. Thank you very much for coming. It's a very great pleasure, the biggest probably for any of us, to be able to teach. So it's a wonderful gift that we all give each other, all of us, by coming here to be here and practice together. It would be wonderful for me to know for how many people this is their first time here. Welcome. And for how many people their tenth or more. Welcome. And everybody else in between. I realized as I came in that because I couldn't be here last year for this course, it's been two years since I was here in February. Some of us were here together at that time. And I realized two things. I realized how happy I was to be here and how it really seems like yesterday that I was here. And I'm quite sure that both of those have significant meaning. And as I listened to uh, the instructions, uh, which were really wonderful and very complete and certainly showed a lot of thought about all the kinds of questions that could come up in people's minds, were really very well thought through. I thought perhaps for people who haven't uh, been here before, it really seems like you've come far away from home because we have quite a particular way in which we live and practice together. So I thought it was important also to say that my sense of what we've all done is that we've actually come home. We've begun to come home. I just arrived, as many as all of you did today. And uh, when I set out from California this morning, I'd been looking forward very much, as I'm sure you all have, to coming here to this time to practice. And I felt excited in the way that I feel about coming home to a place that's been so special to me, where I've done so much of my practice and spent so much time. And of course, we start out with trusting that we can be at home to our truest self wherever we are. We don't need to be in this certain place, but it's very wonderful to be in this certain place. And I wondered about how all of us would teach tonight because we hadn't planned who would make welcoming remarks and who would give the instructions and because we'll all take turns through the week. But I thought to myself, what if when I arrive, Everyone says, why don't you make the opening <coughs> remarks, Sylvia? So I thought to myself, I hope something really interesting happens on this plane so I can tell a story that will be a Dharma story that I can teach about what we are doing here in terms of our practice. So I don't have to say something as uh, vague or as broad as coming home to ourselves what could happen on this flight that I could be able to teach about the truth of the natural mind at ease manifesting itself with kindness and compassion for all beings? So may a story happen. That's called intention practice, by the way, where you begin a sit or a walk and you say, may it happen that I have the clearest understanding of whatever. So I said to myself, may it happen that there's a story that happens. And you may know that the weather on the West Coast has been very tremendous for the last several days. And so there was some question about whether planes would fly. But in fact, my plane took off exactly on time in a tremendous torrential rain. But it wasn't a difficult takeoff. And it took off through this torrential rain and very shortly was above the clouds, bumped a little bit, and then it smoothed out. So I thought, well, I guess I could teach about that, that 
we all come from lives that are tremendously busy and complicated and we come to a place here where it's less complicated and less busy and we have the opportunity and we have the habit and style of living and the techniques of practice that allow the heart to come to a place of some steadiness and some increased malleability, some spaciousness of vision, just as I at 35,000 feet could look out and see a very large terrain. So I thought, well, I could tell that. I could tell the metaphor of coming through the confusion and the clouds and coming to feel quite relaxed with a broad view of how things are with a clear mind. But then I thought, well, that's not much of a story. And in fact, I flew across the whole country and nothing much happened. And I was all right, just nothing much happened. I did some embroidery and I listened to some tapes and did some embroidery. And uh, not long before we were landing, one of the flight attendants sat down next to me in a little bit of time and said, I've been looking at your embroidery. And we had a little talk about embroidery. And uh, she said, I used to do that kind of handwork, but uh, my job is very busy. So we talked about her job as a flight attendant. And uh, then I said, are you based in San Francisco? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, oh, do you know so-and-so? who's a flight attendant on this particular airline, who sits quite regularly with me at Spirit Rock. And she all lit up and she said, oh yes, of course I know so-and-so. We know each other for 30 years. We've been flying together. And I heard that she got married and I said, yes, she did. And we both had some sharing of great happiness, mudita, about the great good fortune in Joe's life, that we both know Joe, who's had this great good fortune of meeting a really wonderful person and being happy. And we said to each other, you know, you don't have to talk very long to anybody to realize the lines of connection. There are not that many degrees of separation. But all of a sudden, a person goes from being someone that you don't know at all to being someone who knows someone who you know. And all of a sudden, if we're awake, we realize that we're all connected. And we all know each other and we can all share happiness about someone else. So we talked about that a little bit. We had this we Dharma discussion without calling it that. And then the pilot announced that uh, we were about to uh, start to land. He said, anybody needs to get up now, which is a euphemism for use the restroom before we need to fasten seatbelts, do it now. So I said, I need to get up. And she looked in the back of the plane and said, oh, there's a very long line in the back. She said, come with me. I'll escort you through the first class because you can't get to go up front. And I thought, well, there's really what happens now. If I retell this story as a Dharma story, it's the most mundane of stories. I flew across the country in a non-eventful flight, and I got to use a restroom when I needed it. That's the whole story. The Dharma the meta story is that when the mind is relaxed and it's clear, it recognizes the fact that we are genuinely all connected to each other and then we care for each other with kindness and compassion and we take special care. If the whole world realized it, the whole world would be changed. This is what we are here to do this week. We are here to discover our capacity to recognize that all beings are our kin. We may not know their names, that may not even know what they work at and who they married so that we can't rejoice or feel compassion for everyone for particular events in their lives. But we can really touch that level of intimacy of recognizing that we are all human beings sharing a life of feelings and challenges. And we can all really take care of each other. So then in the 10 minutes left, as I was all strapped back into my seat, I read some of my mail that I'd brought along to read on the plane. And I had a letter from a student who said, I've just seen Titanic. Everybody saw Titanic. and I haven't yet, but she said, I saw Titanic. And uh, at first, she said, I subjected it to a tremendous 
Aristotelian critique. I wasn't sure exactly what that meant. She said, but when I did that, I didn't think it was so special. She said, but after that, I discovered that it stayed in my mind for many days afterwards. And she said, I realized what stayed in my mind as I thought about the different ways that in the film, apparently, people related to each other in a time of imminent of, of catastrophe, in the time of imminent death. The ways in which people either took care of each other or didn't take care of each other or able to be uh, at ease with the moment or in terrible suffering with the moment. And she said, I guess what I came away thinking about is I don't know how I would be when the chips are down. And that that was really the end of the letter. Then I thought, we don't any of us know, of course, how we'll be when the chips are down. But there are two ways to think about that. One is to realize that there's a whole continuum of ways to be from particular person engaged fully in a particular life to person fully aware of interconnectedness with all beings and in the service of all beings. And we are always living both of those lives and back and forth in a way that's wholesome, I hope, and balanced. And we are facing ourselves more and more as we do this practice in the direction of being aware of that connection with all beings, remembering our story and touching into more and more the great pleasure of the happiness of interconnectedness. That's what we are practicing as we do metta. All of our practice is really on behalf of all beings. So I thought of that, and then I thought the other piece of that is that the chips are always down, that we don't really need to wait for the great, I hope, I I trust, that we will not, any of us, wait for the catastrophes of life to need to discover the parameters of our heart and that every moment of our life becomes a practice session for discovering that we can really be ourselves awake in our life, remembering our life and knowing that our life, as everyone else's, is in the service of all beings everywhere. So my great hope for all of us is that our practice together this week should be in that spirit. My great gratitude again, all of us are tremendously grateful for you to you for having come to practice. Everybody shares with me the wish that everyone's practice be greatly fulfilling and gratifying. going to keep this too long tonight. You might be relieved to know we've all traveled as much as you have. So uh, as those of you who've done 10 million retreats before know, we begin each retreat with something that uh, I think is much more than a kind of a rote tradition, but what we call the taking of the refuges and the five precepts. And if you've done this a lot before, I ask you to, if you can, drop the, the memories you have or the sense of, okay, we just say these three refuges, we say these five precepts, and then we get on with it. And really use this as a way to uh, deeply move into your heart and connect with your motivation, your intention for being here. Because that's really what taking the refuges and precepts are about. A sense of commitment to why you are here to practice this week or this two and a half weeks. And a sense of confidence in 
your own potential for awakening, awakening to recognize the true nature of, as we call it, the mind at ease that manifests as love and compassion, the true nature of all of our being, which is one of, of real peace and freedom. That is each of our potential in any moment. Taking the refuges is a way of consciously acknowledging that to ourselves. It's not just a rote repetition. So just for a moment, uh, reflect on when you're in a time of difficulty, in or out of retreat. It doesn't have to be the most difficult thing in your life, but just the little difficult things that happen during a day, a difficult conversation, something's coming up you don't like, you're feeling restless and bored. Where do you tend to go mentally, physically, for refuge? What do you turn to? Do you turn to physical stimulation? Do you pick up the phone? Do you call a friend? Do you go to the movies? Do you eat some chocolate? I know chocolate is a very high. We were having this discussion today about how good chocolate is for you. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. I'm saying, look and see, where do you go for refuge? Do we find that we go to fantasy in the mind? Or do we withdraw into some kind of fear or negativity, some kind of mental or emotional movement of separation, of protection, a moving out of the present moment? Just not to judge, but to notice, as Sylvia said, when the chips are down in a little way, where do we go for refuge? Because what we do when the chips are down in a little way is going to be indicative of what we're going to do habitually when the chips are really down and they're not going to come back up again. So taking the refuge, what's really our refuge, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, or the Buddha meaning not not the Buddha as a historical person, but as a representative of the fact that as a human being, the potential of each of us is to awaken fully to the peace, the happiness, the ease that is our true nature. Right now in this moment, that's your potential. You don't have to be different from how you are. If you really believe that, begin to have confidence in that, that's what taking refuge is, a re- commitment to that truth, a re-honoring in your heart, yes, my potential is to awaken, and I'll take refuge in that, taking refuge in the Buddha. Taking refuge in the Dharma is also another way of honoring our commitment to take refuge in truth. Dharma can mean mm, the specific teachings of the Buddha, the path, And for some people, the specific teachings are very helpful to turn to, to bring some inspiration, to trust. But dharma also means the truth of how things are, the laws of nature. What is actually really true? What am I really? And that is only discovered when we are willing to take refuge fully and completely in this present moment no matter what's happening. When we can honor the fact that our freedom of heart and mind is accessible, recognizable, when we can open to and take refuge in this moment, that's where we discover love and compassion for ourselves and our connectedness to all beings. It's a hard practice. A lot of moments we don't really want to take refuge in. It's hard to believe that this is really where the truth lies. And so the formal taking refuge in the Dharma or refuge in the truth, saying that is a way of really bringing up that confidence, that motivation of reminding ourselves what's really important. Taking refuge in the Sangha. Sangha means community, as most of you know. Originally, it's uh, meaning the community of awakened beings. 
doesn't have to be someone we know, <laughs> but just to know that such beings are on the planet is a very powerful, for me, reinforcement of the fact that I can trust that I'm also a human being. It takes me back to the first refuge and that as a human being I have the potential to awaken as well in any moment, which takes me back to the second, taking refuge in the Dharma. They all cycle around. But also taking refuge in community is taking refuge in the community of all of us who have come here with this sincere and profound intention to awaken our hearts more deeply to our interconnectedness, to live more fully from the metta, the loving kindness, and the compassion that arises naturally when we recognize our true nature. So the fact that all of us are here with, in some form, in your own words, <clears throat> but this intention to awaken, to, to nurture the love that we are, is an enormously powerful support for each of us, and really for all the world. But I think you'll find over this week, oh, there's times when the other people drive you crazy, of course. But there's also times when we're just so grateful when we're having a hard time and we're so grateful for all the other people that are going through this with us, that someone else's strength turns out to be our strength. We really see how connected we are on that level. And that's a way of taking refuge in the Sangha, refuge in the community. For me, when I'm on retreat, and even when I'm not, but definitely when I'm on retreat, I begin every day by taking the refuges and sometimes every sitting. And sometimes when I'm having a hard time, I take them in the middle of a sitting or in the middle of a walking because it's a way of consciously reaffirming my commitment and and uh, re-establishing my confidence in the possibility of this for me and for all beings. So in a moment when we take the refuges together, if it feels appropriate to you, it's not about becoming a Buddhist, but it's about really reaffirming why you're here to yourself and let yourself really feel the depths of the truth of that. It's not uh, an idle, rote thing that we say. It's also about creating a sacred space that we have come here from our daily lives. I mean, we're not different. It's the same mind, the same heart. The things that come up here are the same things that come up in our daily life. But what we're doing with both the, the way that we've set up the environment here, taking the refuges, and also the precepts of non-harming behavior, what we're doing is creating a sacred space, a space where we are over and over reminded of what's really true and what's really important. It's a little sad to me that we need to consciously create a sacred space out of our society and out of our life to be reminded. But that's how it is. It helps. After a while, we take that reminder with us in our hearts. But it's a lot easier when we have a space that continually can help us remember. So another way of creating this sacred space, the sense of safety, and also a way that we work together as a community is to make a commitment for the time that we're here to non-harming speech and action, to really give care to how and why we do and say what we do and say and so that the intention for our speech and action comes from a real commitment to non-harming, not out of uh, some blind obedience to outer authority, because that's an intention more of fear. I'm talking about non-harming behavior that comes from the inner intention of love and respect for ourselves and for all life. That's really the manifestation of an awakened heart. So by having uh, an agreement 
to abide by five very basic aspects of non-harming speech and action, we're reinforcing that inner sense of connectedness to one another. And pay attention. It's not that, you know, if, if you break one of these precepts, it's horrible and we throw you out of here in your ear. It's not a matter of once you've taken these precepts, that's it, you know. You have to abide by these or you're failed, you're doomed. Because we all, they're so subtle when you look at them, that we all have ways that we're stepping over the boundaries often. The point is, in this retreat, just pay attention. So if you find you're wanting to harm somebody or an animal, you find that you want to take something that's not freely given, or in fact you did take something that wasn't freely given, don't just sit and hate yourself. That doesn't help. But pay attention. How and why did you do it? And what's the effect on yourself and on others afterwards? And if you really pay attention, you might start to see that if we do something that harms another, physically or verbally, when you pay attention, you find out that it's also harming yourself. I've never been able to do something that was harmful that I didn't really suffer from if I was awake and paying attention to my experience. It's back to what Sylvia was saying, we can't separate. You can't even say that's your pain or my pain because it's so mingled. It's just pain caused by carelessness, really. So we ask everyone to agree to pay attention to and live by these five training rules, they're called, for the opening and awakening of each of our hearts, as well as for creating an atmosphere of fearlessness. Fearlessness meaning we each know we have nothing to fear from one another. Isn't that a wonderful way to live? It's so rare in our culture. You know, no one here is going to hurt you. No one's going to steal anything from you. No one's going to speak harshly. It helps that we're in silence. It really helps. <laughs> but that gift of fearlessness is a wonderful gift, and it allows us to let the process of the meditation happen because we're here on a metta retreat this first week developing loving kindness well if you've done it before you know if you haven't you might be surprised to find out that loving kindness isn't the only thing that's going to arise in your heart and mind (laughs) I guarantee that's the one thing I can guarantee something else will come up at least once that won't be so pretty And the space of fearlessness is what allows us to be able to open to this. Opening to the difficulty with loving-kindness is the loving-kindness practice. So the five training rules or precepts, the first one is not to kill or harm any living being, not just people, includes insects. But you're lucky it's February. You're not going to be too taxed on that one. Come back in May with the black flies and try it. Then it's really a precept. But, But not to harm any living being. And here, we're pretty safe. We won't do that. But just watch when your mind wants to harm someone or yourself. Remember, you're included as a living being. And just watch and pay attention and see what happens and how it feels when wanting to harm comes up. The second is not to take what is not freely given, not to steal. Again, in in the big ways, of course, we're not going to do that. But look at the little things when you just really want some food that's not offered. And you know if you get up at three in the morning, maybe I shouldn't say this. Maybe I won't say it, (laughs) those of you who haven't been here. (laughs) But, you know, you go through all these things, figuring out how you can get it, and no one will know, and all of this stuff. Stop a minute and notice what's going on in your heart and mind. Do you feel good? Do you feel connected to other beings? Are you manifesting loving kindness? Or are you really suffering? And is getting that cheese going to be what alleviates the suffering? (laughs) 
or is letting go of the desire and just being again in the sense of non-harming, not taking what's not given. Explore that. The third in lay life, in other words, in your daily life, is not to harm ourselves or others with our sexual activity, not to intrude on another relationship, what they say, committing adultery, not to be in abusive relationships, not to use sex for power trips or whatever. It's a big one. In terms of the retreat, we agree to not engage in any sexual activity. And this is really similar to being in silence so that we're not communicating and so that we're using our energy for cultivating concentration and loving kindness and investigation rather than uh, just moving the energy off in other directions. So for the purpose of the retreat, we take a precept of remaining celibate. The fourth training rule is not to use harsh and abusive speech, not to lie, and not to use, uh, not to gossip or just be involved in frivolous speech, all of which is subsumed under noble silence. And this is really one of the treasures of these retreats to be able to spend a week or two and a half weeks in silence. Is there anyone here who's never done a retreat before? A few people. If you've never done one before, sometimes the idea in advance of staying silent for so long can be a little daunting. Most, And there, there's times when it's difficult. Admittedly, there's times when you're longing to talk. Again, as with all of these training rules, Rather than getting upset about it or blaming yourself or blaming the rule, look and see what's really going on in me right now that needs to go and talk. What is it that I'm either wanting to communicate or wanting to get away from? But most people find, after a couple of days, that the silence is a tremendous gift. It's really wonderful because there's times when you don't want to have to be nice to anybody. You don't have to smile. You don't want to have to be involved in social amenities. You just want to be with what's going on. And here you have the freedom to do that. You don't have to worry that you're insulting someone if you sit down next to them and you don't acknowledge them. Please don't. Really let yourself, let the silence be a support for your practice. It's a tremendous support. And there's plenty of harsh and abusive speech that might go on inside your own mind. So you can just notice that. The the silence also includes not reading and not writing. Because these are ways that they can be very helpful, of course, but for the most part, the real insight and the real cultivation of metta comes from being fully and totally with our own experience. And even reading Dharma stuff can be a way of moving out of our experience. Or you can end up trying to make your experience match what you've read, or what we say, for that matter. Don't. Really trust what your experience is as it unfolds in the moment. And it'll unfold slightly differently for each person. Trust that. Honor your experience. And so please don't don't read or write. And the fifth Fifth training rule is not to take drugs or intoxicants or drink that clouds the mind and the heart, which is kind of obvious since we're here to cultivate open-heartedness and clarity. So we'd like to formally begin the retreat by I'll say the refuges and the precepts and ask you if that feels comfortable for you to repeat them after me. We'll do it in English. If you don't want to say it out loud, it's fine to just do it inside. We do the refuges three times. Maybe one of the three times you'll be here for it. That's I think we do it three times traditionally. The precepts just once. And again, uh, really let yourself feel these in your heart. Don't don't let it just be wrote. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. 
I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I undertake the precept not to harm living beings. I undertake the precept not to steal. I undertake the precept to remain celibate for this retreat. I undertake the precept not to lie or use harsh or abusive speech. I undertake the precept not to use drugs or intoxicants that cloud the mind. And, and by the way, that last one does not include any particular medications you're needing to take for physical or mental conditions. So we're talking recreational. So thank you. That is the formal beginning. We have now entered the noble silence and the beginning of the retreat. We'll have a short sitting together, but if you would like, and it really will be short, but if you would like to stretch a little bit or stand up for a minute, please go ahead. So tonight we're not going to begin the metta or loving kindness instruction, but just have a short sitting of following the breath, just to let ourselves arrive here, bring in a little calmness, a little centeredness. And if you find you get up earlier tomorrow or stay up later tonight and want to sit, just quietly stay with your breath. Let your mind come to a little bit of, of centeredness, of presence. So let yourself sit as comfortably as you can, but also in a way that's erect. Finding that balance between being erect but also relaxed, not tense. The posture will really reflect the quality of the mind. So that your back's straight, whether you're on a chair, a bench, a cushion. Put your hands any way that's comfortable. And most people find it easy to meditate with the eyes gently closed, not tight, not squeezing, but just relaxed and closed. But if you're used to sitting with the eyes opened and unfocused, that's also okay. So if you want, just let your eyes gently close. And take a couple of quiet but slow, deep breaths and just let yourself feel the breathing. (coughs) Nothing special, just breathe in. And on the out-breath, let yourself, your body relax. Just come to a sense of presence in the physical body as you sit here. 
You might feel a sense of your posture. Maybe your sit bones on the cushion, your knees, perhaps the erectness of your spine. Notice how your shoulders are resting, your hands. Come to a gentle sense of presence in your physical body, a sense of sitting here, relaxed but awake. And within the field of your physical experience of sitting, just begin to notice the feelings in your body as the breath comes in and goes out. Nothing special, no big deal. Just feeling as this breath comes in, as this breath goes out. And feeling as this breath comes in, as this breath goes out. You might feel it in the nose. You might feel the rising and falling of the abdomen or the chest. Wherever you feel it is fine. But let all your attention softly rest in this in-breath and this out-breath. The sensations arising. And don't worry when your mind wanders off. But as soon as you notice you're thinking about something, just let it be, but come back and feel the sensations of this next breath. As gently and easily, but with commitment. Don't try to create anything special. Simply feeling this in-breath, this out-breath. Meeting each breath freshly.
starting over with each new breath. Nothing to hold on to, nothing to look forward to. Resting at ease in this one breath. And during the whole retreat, always feel free to come back and rest in the breath as a way to gather your energies or just bring in some relaxation if you find things getting tough. And we'll talk more about that as the week goes on. So tonight, please now, uh, if you can, take rest. This is it for the evening. And tomorrow, because uh, you've all traveled, There won't be a sitting before breakfast. Is the person who rings the wake-up bell here? So tomorrow, just uh, maybe you could ring the bell at 6 o'clock. 
And then breakfast would be at 6.30? Yeah, and breakfast will be at 6.30. If you pop awake and you want to come sit, that's fine. But so just for tomorrow, the wake up will be at 6 o'clock. Then there's breakfast at 6.30. Then there's the work period. And then our first sitting together will be at 8.30 tomorrow morning. Any questions about any logistics? Okay. Oh, yeah. Great. Okay, I hope you all rest well and we'll see you again in the morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.